0: Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm excited uh, to share with you this morning. We are kind of in between series right now. Last week, if you were here, Chelsea did an incredible job of uh, ending our Lowborn series. I wasn't here, but I went back and listened to it online. It was awesome. She did a great job. And then next week, we have our block party. You guys should be more excited about that, and here's why: because Khalifa's is going to be here, and I ate at Khalifa's this week, and it was some of the best tacos I've ever had in my life, and I'm not just saying that. Um, And then Sojourner Coffee is going to be here, top shelf coffee, and then the Nomadic Fuse is going to be making uh, shaved ice for us snowballs. It's good. Uh oh, Lord, (laughs) was that you? God really wants you at the block party <laughs> that's what it's going to be a great week next week you're going to want to be here. I am super bummed. I 'm um, actually going to be in Guatemala with another guy from the fold on our first exploratory international mission trip. Hopefully next year we're going to be taking a team to Guatemala, so this year we're going and checking it out, checking out the ministry for the first time. Um, but you are going to want to be here next Sunday at eleven and then after that, we are starting our summer in the spiritual disciplines. So we're going to spend 12 weeks. That sounds like a long time. This summer we're spending 12 weeks in the spiritual disciplines. We're going to go through six spiritual disciplines and in each one we're going to talk about what it looks like to practice that discipline as an individual and then what it looks like as a community for us to practice that spiritual discipline. So today our goal is to look at why we would practice spiritual disciplines. So we've spent the last like five months looking at the ethic of the kingdom of God, looking at the reality, the character of King Jesus. So now we're spending the summer looking at how we embody the way of Jesus, how we are formed into the way of Jesus practically as his followers. So I'm really excited about it. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12. If you've got a Bible, open up there. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you grew up in a youth group, there's a good chance you have had a t shirt with this verse on it at some point. Um, it is super common. But while you're getting your Bibles open, I want to say this. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to put up on the screen what is kind of a roadmap for the life of following Jesus. Anytime we put something like a roadmap on screen in front of humans, we treat it like a race and we try to win. It's our natural reaction to turn towards comparison and to say, how do I get ahead of other people? Or am I as far along as I should be in life right now? So I wanna tell you this, there is no prize for first place in the way of Jesus. (laughs) The right step is just the next step. So today the goal is not to figure out how far behind you are or how far ahead of everybody else you are or anything like that. The goal today is to look at what the life of following Jesus looks like and just determine where I'm at and what the next step is. Sound good? Okay, awesome. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus we thank you again for your word for your faithfulness to speak to us through your word for your faithfulness to form us and transform us as we surrender to you God we ask that your name is the only name that would matter this morning what's from me let it be revealed so it can be forgotten but what's from you let it let it plant itself deeply in our hearts so that we would be formed into your likeness We love you, Jesus. Amen. So here's kind of a loaded question. How many of you um, do New Year's resolutions? Anybody do New Year's resolutions? All right, like five of us. All right, so here's a follow-up question. How many of you have ever uh, not followed through on a New Year's resolution before? Yeah, I figured the second question would inform the first question's answer. Like most of us don't do New Year's resolutions anymore because we've tried it before and uh, didn't follow through on them. Yeah? Yeah? All right, so here's a couple more questions. You don't have to raise your hand for these. Just, just think about them. Have you ever uh, started a workout plan and then stopped a workout plan? Because I have like 10 or 12 times, if I'm being honest. Um, have you ever started maybe a reading plan where you were going to read through the Bible in a year? Or maybe you were going to read like 25 books this year, and then you realized books are long. <laughs> And Netflix is more interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Have you ever like started a budget that lasted until Target had a great sale? And then you were like, $5 t-shirts. I'm not going to lose money. I mean, I'm going to buy 20 of them. Uh, (laughs) Have you ever, I don't know, started like a dieting plan or an eating plan? Do you remember when everybody did keto? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? There was like 18 months where every person I know did keto. I mean, every person that I know did keto. I don't know anybody doing keto now, just for the record. Um, Here's the point. Change is hard. Change is really hard. Even something as trivial as changing your habits, your spending habits, is hard. But when you start talking about changing core desires, patterns of thinking ways that you've been living your whole life, change can feel nearly impossible. You know, I have to admit, for a long time, I thought that you could change anything in your life if you wanted it bad enough. That If you just put in enough effort, that you could change whatever you wanted. And that, as is probably obvious, caused me to be pretty judgmental to look at other people who I thought weren't changing and say, well, if you just wanted it bad enough, if you were willing to put in the effort, I mean, come on. You're choosing this same pattern over and over again. It also created a really good excuse for me to find anything that I couldn't change and just say, well, I don't really want to change that. (laughs) I can quit anytime I want. I just don't want to right now. (laughs) I think that there are some things in life. I've learned that there are maybe even quite a few things that for some of us with effort, with concerted effort, with discipline, with accountability, maybe with a program um, or, or something like that, we can change actions. We can change behaviors in our life. We, we can get to a place where we can manage behaviors. I might learn to not lash out in anger anymore. I might learn to speak more kindly to my wife or more kindly to my kids. I might learn to not look at pornography anymore or to not abuse a substance anymore. I might, with effort and with a program and with help, be able to change that thing. But if you're like me, you have found yourself looking in the mirror with changed actions but the same desires you found yourself at a place in life where you thought, man, you know what? I don't lash out in anger as much anymore, but I am just as bitter as I used to be, and it just has nowhere to go. <sighs> or you've found yourself maybe changing one addic- addiction for another, you know, alcoholism to workaholism. Maybe you used to cope with a substance, and now you cope with Netflix, but you look in the mirror and you see that same desire that's there and you're forced to ask this question. I mean, my actions changed, but did anything about me change? The book of Romans turns on a hinge at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It can be divided into two parts as a book. The book of Romans was written by a guy named Paul, And Paul was what we would call a church planter and a missionary. That meant he went to different cities and he would plant or he would start a new church. Um, And he would spend time in that city. He He would plant the church. He would disciple the people, teach them, and he would train up leaders who could take his place so that he could go plant another church. But he wrote the book of Romans as a letter because in the city of Rome, a church sprung up that he had never been to before. And he wasn't sure he was ever going to be able to go and disciple and teach those people. So he wrote the book of Romans. And the book of Romans, the first half, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, really functions as everything you need to know. Everything that Paul wanted to say informationally to this new church. He goes through the the story of sin, the the people of Israel, the way Gentiles play into the story, people who aren't Israelites. It talks about the interplay between law and grace. It is different dense, it's concentrated, it is highly theological, it's really everything you need to know. And it's worth saying right now that uh, the, the first half of the book of Romans, Romans chapters 1 through 11, should be read as a unit. Some people will take individual chapters or verses out of the book of Romans and try to build a whole theology off of one individual chapter, and it doesn't work like that. You can't take Romans chapter 6 or Romans chapter 11 and build a theology on them because 1 through 11 all function together as an overarching narrative. That's how it was written. And then when you get to Romans chapter 12, verse 3, Paul has made this transition. He's not talking about what you should believe anymore, he's talking about what you should do, how you should treat one another, what life should look like in the church as a follower of Jesus. But this shift happens. Through these two verses we just read, Paul turns like a door hinge from one topic to another. He starts off by saying, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, so in other words, because of everything that I just said, because of what you now know, present your bodies. That's important. Something physical. He doesn't say present yourselves, he says present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. There's something physical about what he's asking us to do because this is your true and proper worship. So because of what you know, you present your bodies. You take physical action. And then he says, do not be conformed. Do not live the same way. Do not pursue the same goals as the world around you, but be transformed. The hinge that the book of Romans turns on is change. How does change actually happen in the life of a human? But not just behavioral change. Transformation. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So there's something physical about change, and there's something inward. There's something mental, emotional, and spiritual about change. And change encompasses both of these things. Something we do with our bodies and something we do with our minds. And then, through this transformation, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So in other words, Paul is saying, Here's everything you know. Because of that, I'm about to tell you everything you're supposed to do. And if you want to be able to live that way, you have to engage, you have to find transformation. And transformation happens in the physical presentation of our bodies and the renewal of our minds. We all on the same page? Transformation is hard. It is difficult for us to live in the way of Jesus. Not perfectly. Not perfectly. But for us to live in his way, transformation is required. And transformation is a physical and mental, emotional. It's an outward and inward process. So here's what I want to do. For the rest of the morning, um, we're going to go through what um, it's a tool that's called the stages of the journey. It's going to be up here on the screen. Um, I would highly recommend, if you can figure out how to put this into your notes, put this into your notes. If you need to take a picture of this, take a picture of it. We'll put it up on the screen after the service, too. So if you want to go back and take a picture of it, you can do that. But this is the stages of the spiritual journey. And what this does is it kind of outlines what life tends to look like for a follower of Jesus and the stages of life we go through. Another way of saying that is this is how transformation normally looks in the life of a follower of Jesus. Now, this is a tool that was created by some friends of mine at a church called Emmaus in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, And just so you know what went into this, um, they developed this tool by examining psychology and how humans change. By examining um, some thought leaders in spiritual formation, people like Pete Scazzaro, who are Christian teachers about spiritual formation and development. I would recommend that you Google Pete Scazzaro and read any book you can find by him. Um, that's just free advice. He's a great author. They obviously spent a lot of time examining scripture, but in addition to that, they looked back through church history, and they studied the works of authors and formation writers like Bernard of Clairvaux. They examined the different traditions, Eastern Orthodox tradition, Protestant tradition, various traditions, and they found overlap in how Christians throughout human history have talked about change and came to this conclusion that if you're going to kind of collate or synthesize how change happens according to both psychology and Christian tradition and Scripture, that it seems to happen in this way. Sound good? All right. You ready to jump in? Perfect. All right. So following Jesus generally starts with moments with God. Now that could be for you, that could have been like youth camp when you had an experience where you were like crying. It could be, um, it could be a moment in worship. Um, it could be church. It could be um, the gathering. It could be in your quiet time. Most of us have a moment with God. We have some time in our life where we can remember. It could be a day. It could be an exact minute. It could be kind of a season where we would say something started to change. We began to become aware of God in our lives. We began to come aware, to become aware of truth. Something dawned on us. Now, here's something that's important to note. In our culture right now, we tend to imagine that moments with God are always emotional, because we think that all everything significant is emotional. When we think of someone encountering the presence of God, we imagine someone crying with their hands raised, some very tangible version of God's presence. But I just want to say that some of us are emotionally expressive people, and some of us are not emotionally expressive people. So if you are not an emotionally expressive person, you would not expect a moment with God to be an emotionally expressive moment. Does that make sense? So this doesn't necessarily mean that your relationship with God started with an altar call. I've had moments with God in church gatherings. I've had moments with God in the woods by myself. I've had moments with God in my car. I've had times that were emotional. I've had times that were largely intellectual where an idea just dawned on me. But generally, the first stage of the journey with Jesus is we have these moments of encountering God in some way, of growing awareness. And here's what that does. Those moments begin, begin to make us aware of the way of Jesus and invite us deeper. We might say they build a hunger in us for the way of Jesus. Does that make sense? As we encounter his presence, we grow in desire for him that leads us to the second stage, or which we would call managing behavior. So you encounter God, you begin to become aware of who he is, and you start to see the truth of his way. So you start to see that God teaches that there are some actions that are toxic, and there are some actions that are helpful. There are some things that are good to do, and there are some things that are bad to do. So because you are beginning to see how good God is... And because you've encountered his presence, you start to try to manage your behavior and to see things change in your life. Now it's worth noting here that a lot of us, when we begin to try to manage behavior as followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowers us to change things that we have never been able to see changed before. You might have an addiction that you've dealt with your whole life and you never found freedom from, but once you began to see the love of Jesus, that desire that could only be met in that thing is met somewhere else, and that, that, uh, that behavior is able to be managed so your, your addictions maybe begin to change. You might cut out pornography in your life. You might stop binge drinking. You might start taking a Sabbath. You might start tithing. But you begin to look at your actions and say, there are things that are hurting me, and there are things that are, that are helping me, and they're helping the world. So you begin to manage those behaviors. Make sense? So that's stage two. That's usually the second place in our journey. Maybe some of you today, you've started kind of becoming aware of God's presence in your life. You started gaining interest, and maybe you've made a decision to follow Jesus, and the next step in the stage for you is just to ask the question, what behaviors are hurting me? What behaviors go against the way of Jesus? In this next stage, this is where a shift starts to happen. And this shift, I would describe it like this. You begin to see that the way of Jesus is good for you and good for the world. One more time. You begin to see that the way of Jesus is both good for you and it's good for the world around you because you've begun to see the positive impact of managing those negative behaviors. So you begin to see that those sins were hurting you, and you begin to fall, we might say, more deeply in love with Jesus. Oftentimes, this is marked by a greater passion for Jesus, something, some sort of emotional experience or, so, or some stronger feelings towards Jesus as you begin to see that this is actually good. Jesus isn't just an idea, but there's actually change happening in your life. And this leads you to mission with Jesus. Now, I would say one of the most consistent patterns that I've seen in my own life and as a pastor for the last 10 years or so, is there is something significant that happens in the life of a believer when they begin to engage in mission. I can't tell you how many times I have seen someone who follows Jesus go on their first missions trip or begin volunteering at a homeless shelter for the first time, or go downtown and serve homeless people on the street, or start helping out at a juvenile detention center, which we're in the process of scheduling our first chapel in juvie um, for this summer, which I'm really excited about. But I can't tell you how many times I have seen a follower of Jesus make a missional decision, and it's like a new passion is developed in your life, because you begin to see a life of purpose you begin to see the way of Jesus lived out. As you begin to practice things that Jesus said, like whenever you serve the least of these, when you visit those who are in prison, when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, you do these things to me. As you participate in mission, something really, really significant happens in your life. Does that make sense? Now, There are a lot of followers of Jesus, just so we can all evaluate. There are a lot of followers of Jesus who have spent their whole life occasionally having moments with God and managing behavior. But they have never developed compassion because they've never participated in mission. Don't answer this question out loud. Have you ever met an uncompassionate Christian? Don't laugh. The shift happens as we begin to participate in mission because we begin to live in purpose. We begin to see not only the significance of the way of Jesus for us, but the significance of the way of Jesus for the world around us. It's a really significant moment. But you'll notice that there's this big, bold, white line here called the wall. It's where, This is where most followers of Jesus plateau. The, the people who developed this tool argue, and I would agree, that 70 to 80% of followers of Jesus never progress past mission. And, And here's why I think that is. The first three stages have a tangible emotional payoff in your life. When you have a moment with God, whether it's an emotional moment, whether it's an intellectual moment, it feels good. You learn something new about God's character. You have an experience of his presence in worship. It feels good. When you begin to manage behavior, when you begin to do things Jesus instructs you in the world and to eliminate toxic behaviors in your life, there is an emotional payoff. As you eliminate toxic behaviors, you start to feel better. And as you begin to live outwardly in mission with God, you feel a sense of purpose. There's an emotional payoff at each point in the journey so far. But there is not an emotional payoff of moving inward. Moving inward hurts. See, this is the wall, is that place in the life that I have experienced many times, and I think most followers of Jesus will experience, where you say, you know what? has anything really changed? I know I don't lash out like I used to, but I still feel just as bitter as I've always felt. I know I don't look at the things on the internet I used to, but I still feel just as stuck in lust as I always have. I know I I don't abuse that substance anymore, but I still feel like I need to cope. I still feel like I have to have something to help me cope in the world. That's where we experience that wall. And once again, so that we have the ability to identify, it's, it's pretty common to see followers of Jesus, and I'm not trying to point fingers here because I have been here plenty of times in my own life. It is very common to encounter followers of Jesus who are very excited about mission. They have compassion for a very specific group of people, but they do not have empathy because they've never moved inward. Now listen, I know this is a really, this is more of a lecture than a sermon this morning, but this is really important. There's a difference between compassion and empathy. There's a difference between mission and empathy. There's a difference between joy that comes from a deeply rooted place in your heart and managing behavior to try to force happiness. There is a significant difference between those things. There are a lot of Christians who are passionate about abortion but don't have the ability to empathize with someone who's a different race than them. There are a lot of Christians who are passionate about international missions work but do not have the ability to empathize with the person who lives across the street or works next, works next to them whose life doesn't look like theirs or who struggles with a different set of things than they do. It is very, very common in our world to have followers of Jesus who are passionate about some aspect of the mission, who do not commit the major sins because they manage behavior and they have lots of moments with God, but their growth in the way of Jesus has plateaued because they have not moved inward. And you can see the lack of empathy in their lives because empathy is only developed through inward movement. So here's here's what the movement inward looks like. It looks like not asking, how do I stop lashing out? But it looks like asking, why am I so bitter? Who hurt me? Who do I need to forgive? Where did I learn this pattern of living? It looks like rather than asking, how do I stop binge drinking? Asking questions like, what am I trying to forget? What am I trying to deal with? What am I trying to cope? Oftentimes, moving inward looks like going to counseling. Or it looks like a tool like maybe the Enneagram or a different personality test that are not the Bible but can be very helpful in examining our inward motivations and desires. Oftentimes, movement inward means not just having an accountability partner who will tell you when you're sinning or not, but having a friend who will ask you hard questions about your motivations and your desires and your drives. Someone who will look at you and say, this doesn't seem like you. And someone who knows you well. The the movement inward is a painful part of the journey. There is not an immediate emotional payout for asking the hard questions of what drives you and what informs your decisions and actions. It is often painful. Because it means asking, what wounds did I develop as a child? What lies have I believed throughout the course of my life? It means asking questions like, what do I believe about myself that would cause me to treat myself and other people this way? And it hurts to confront what Pete Scazzaro calls our shadow side. Most of us go through our whole lives trying to ignore the dark side of ourselves. Or trying to hide it. Moving inward means looking at that part of ourselves that we don't like with curiosity and saying, why are you there? Rather than pretending like it's not there. Does this make sense? Give me a nod if this makes sense. It's a hard and it's an uncomfortable thing, and it's something that can't be done alone, just for the record. It requires community to do that well. Confronting your shadow. But it's in the movement inward that we find not management of unhealthy behaviors, but healing from wounds that lead to unhealthy behaviors. It's where we find truth that confronts lies that have caused sin in our lives. And it's where transformation happens. And that's what ultimately leads to the last stage that would be modeling the life of Jesus modeling the life of jesus does not mean perfection i want to tell you as clearly as i can no one at the fold will ever teach or expect perfection in the life of jesus in the life of a christian we will not be perfect what we're talking about here is the difference between manufacturing joy and authentic joy what we're talking about is the difference between trying to force contentment and peace or feeling contentment and peace because manufacturing joy and forcing peace comes from trying to manage unhealthy behaviors. But authentic joy comes from a life that's deeply aligned with the truth of Jesus. And that's where we model the life of Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus, yes, yes, you see him loving the poor and serving the outcast, and you see him living in purity and righteousness, and all of these things that we would think of as modeling his life. But at the root of all that, you also see kind of an unflappable joy And a contentment. You see someone who suffers, but who suffers with joy and with hope. When we're talking about modeling the life of Jesus, we're talking about the source of that love and compassion for others, not just the actions of love and compassion for others. I can make myself go on a missions trip, but I can't make myself love someone that my culture has taught me to hate. That only comes from the inner work of developing empathy and confronting lies with truth. So, I want to propose to you this morning that the way we get over the wall is spiritual disciplines. And here's why. Because spiritual disciplines are a physical act that opens the door for spiritual renewal. You remember Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2, present your bodies as a living sacrifice physical do not be conformed, but be transferred by the renewing of your mind. Spiritual disciplines are things that we do. They're physical actions that we take. And these actions, if we do them with intention, orient our lives around the truth of Scripture. So when I choose generosity as a spiritual discipline, I physically embody my dependence on Christ by giving things away that I think I need. It's a physical action that reflects a spiritual truth. And when I take the spiritual action, it opens the door for the Holy Spirit to speak truth to the lies and fears in my life. Spiritual disciplines are often uncomfortable because they bring to the surface the lies and fears that we hold But they bring to the surface the things that the Holy Spirit can begin to transform. Make sense? So this summer, we're going to talk about six spiritual disciplines. We're going to talk about serving, generosity, prayer, scripture, and confession. And we're going to spend one week talking about what it looks like as an individual to practice this spiritual discipline, and then we're going to spend a week talking about what it looks like for a community, for a church to embody this spiritual discipline. And we're doing this not because these are things that Christians are supposed to do to earn points from God, not because God like, expects us to do these things simply out of obedience, but we're going to talk about these because these are the door that empower us to move inward. Now listen, spiritual disciplines are, are not easy fixes for transformation. They're a door you have to walk through to move inward. Right, so they're not an end-all, be-all. Some of us still need counseling, and we still need mentoring, and we still need to do some hard work. But spiritual disciplines open the door. I cannot tell you how formative an extended practice of solitude in prayer is. Because when you sit in solitude, as Christians have done for thousands of years, it forces the lies that you've come to believe to the surface. Because you can't drown them out with the noise anymore. And then you can confront them in partnership with the Holy Spirit, with truth. Spiritual disciplines are physical practices that create space for spiritual renewal. Sound good? So this has been a lot of information. Not really a typical sermon at the fold. And that's on purpose. Here's what I want to ask you to do as we close in worship. I want to ask you to, in prayer, look at this tool as you've written it down or taken a picture of it, or maybe you can just remember the stages. And I just want you to ask the question as honestly as you can, where am I at on the journey? Now, you might, like I said before, be experiencing moments with God. And the next step for you is to ask, what are some behaviors that I need to manage? that's a wonderful place to be. I'm so excited that that next step is there for you. You might be in a place where you're starting to manage behaviors. You've started to see some transformation in your life, but you need to engage in mission. The next step for you is to engage in mission with Christ so that you can learn compassion. And that's a wonderful next step. We've got lots of opportunities, like our New Orleans trip, to help you do that, to help you pursue that. Or you might find yourself, like so many of us, bumping up against the wall. And the next step for you is going to be to figure out what it means to move inward. Through practicing spiritual disciplines, through counseling, through mentoring, through discipleship, something like that. Spiritual disciplines are an important tool wherever you are on the journey. And if you start practicing spiritual disciplines at the beginning of your journey, you will find the wall significantly less intimidating when you get there. So you don't have to wait until you approach the wall to begin practicing spiritual disciplines. The last thing I'm going to say about this is you see that big squiggly line? Nobody progresses through the journey with Jesus in a linear way. Nobody, nobody goes up and to the right the whole time. Our relationship with Jesus looks like it's going all over the place. We often take two steps forward, eight steps back, 12 steps forward, three steps sideways. I mean, that's how human life works. The point is not to win. The point is to take the next step. All right? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you constantly invite us into formation and transformation. We thank you that you do not leave us in our sins. We thank you that you do not leave us in our lives, but you continually invite us into a deeply formed life. You continually invite us into transformation. God, I thank you that whether we've been following you for a few days or for a few decades, that you continually invite us deeper into transformation. Give us the courage to move inward, to take the next step, whatever that step would be love you, Jesus. Amen.